I want to tell you uh, just really quickly um, my story of when I became a Christian and uh, some of the impact that that had on my life. So I became a Christian in 1993, and uh, I know I've shared some of the details here with you before, but um, I had a very good idea before I became a Christian of what it meant to not be a Christian. I think many of you would understand exactly what I mean by that. I, I knew the attitude to have. I knew what kind of words I would say. I knew the kind of behavior that was okay to have. So before I became a Christian, I was very, very um, well informed of what, what it meant for me to be a non-Christian. I had it down actually really well. I, I was a very good non-Christian, you might say. I knew what people expected of me. And, you know, as a non-Christian, I, I kind of had an understanding of, of what people, especially in the church and what people outside the church, would have expected to me. Now, after I gave my life to Jesus, I remember very clearly waking up that next morning. I became a Christian on April 1st, late in the evening. And on April 2nd, I woke up in the morning and, and I had this, just this moment where I started to wrestle with, what does it mean for me to be a Christian? I, I understood that. I had made a decision to surrender my life to Jesus. I had made a decision to ask Jesus to become my, my Savior. But what does it mean to be a Christian? What does a Christian do? These are some of the things that I started to wrestle with because, like I said, I was very aware of what it meant to not be a Christian. But now that I'm a Christian, well, what's this supposed to look like? What am I supposed to do? I had grown up in a Christian family. I'd watched my parents. I'd watched my siblings but one thing that I knew right off the bat was being a Christian isn't mimicking someone else's Christian life. So it wasn't that I had no idea of what it looked like in some ways, but because I'd seen it in my parents, I'd seen it in my siblings, and I'd seen it in many other people. But now for me, what does it mean for me to be a Christian? Who was I supposed to be? What was I supposed to be like? Shortly after I became a Christian, our youth group from this church, we went to camp, and, uh, and this was about a few months later, and so um, I'd never been to one of these before, and so I decided I would go along, and this camp was an incredibly difficult experience for me. At the camp, I didn't only wrestle with what it meant to, for me to be a Christian, I also had to wrestle with the fact that I felt absolutely sure that God was placing a call on my life for ministry. That God didn't just simply want me to be a Christian, that God wanted me to serve him in some way. This became very, very clear to me. So here I was, this, this new Christian wrestling with what it meant for me to be a Christian, but at the same time, I'm still struggling with my temper. I'm still struggling with, you know, swearing. I'm still struggling with so many other negative behaviors that I had had part of my life for such a long time. And now I'm surrounded by all these other teenagers, all these other leaders, and I'm watching them, and I'm realizing very quickly that I don't really know how to live like they live. At the same time, I was also very aware of the fact that many of them weren't as genuine in their faith with God as they presented themselves to be. So again, I'm torn. I'm, I'm trying to, to not be what I once was. I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be. I'm, I'm angry at some of the people I'm watching because I can see that they're not all that genuine. And, and all of this is happening in the midst of all of this. I have this very real awareness that God is calling me to ministry. 
So at this camp, one day I made a decision to, to go out canoeing all by myself. I bailed on, you know, all the things that were planned, and I just went and did my own thing, and, and I went out on the canoe and, and sat on this rock for a long time all by myself. And I would still say to this day that that was where God made it clear to me that he had a plan for my life and that it meant surrendering to him. And so I'm on this rock and I'm wrestling with God. And, and I don't know if you've ever had a time of wrestling with God. I'm a, I'm a fairly new Christian. And I'm praying and I'm, I'm asking God, like, what does all this mean for me? And what do you want from me? And, and why do I still have some of the temptations that I have? And, and why this and why that? And, and all this stuff. I, I, I can't even clarify or clearly state all the things that we talked about. But I'm, I'm wrestling with God and, and I completely lost track of time. And, and by the time all of this was done, I was exhausted. And we were nearing the evening. And so I canoed back to the, to the camp area, and, and I put the canoe away, and, and some people had seen me by now, and they're like, oh, that Ike, you know, he's already breaking the rules, and he's already doing things, and we're nearing the end of camp, and, and so I hauled the canoe up, and I'm so exhausted, I went back to my cabin, and I just laid down, and I fell asleep. And a little while later, you know, or maybe a long time later, someone's shaking me, and they're like, hey, Ike, you need to get up. The leaders are royally ticked off at you. You are missing session. And so they're shaking me, and they're like, you need to get up, and you need to get over there, because they're going to skin you alive, because they're really unhappy with you. You snuck off. You did your own thing. They've been wondering where you were all day. And here I am, just utterly exhausted, been fighting with God, wrestling with God, trying to understand what all this meant. And so it was at this camp where I made this decision to, to wrestle with God and to understand this. And so I went to the last session, and I don't know if it was what the speaker was talking about. I don't know if it was just me being tired. I don't know what it was, but I just broke down and I just started to weep. And I just cried and cried and cried, and I couldn't stop crying. And, you know, teenager, you know, while I'm 19 years old, so older teenager, I'm pretty embarrassed already. Like, what in the world's going on? Like, it is not just some quiet crying. It is all out sobbing. I'm so thankful to, to men like Bill Giesrich and John Bergman who recognized that God was doing something in my life. And they pulled me into this other room, and they're like, Ike, explain what's going on. What's going on? Like, what, what, you know, they're thinking maybe it's remorse. And I just said to them, I don't know what it is. I'm just exhausted. I don't know what it is. I just kept saying that. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. And so these men just prayed over me and they prayed with me because here is something that I had to understand for myself. And here's a decision that I made at that camp. And I want you and I to wrestle with this today because when I gave my life to Jesus, I know what I did. I know that when I gave my life to Jesus, I asked Jesus to forgive my sins. I asked Jesus to, to cleanse me of all my sins, and I know that that's important. That's, a, that's, a, that's the first step in your relationship with Jesus. But it was at this camp where I would say I fully surrendered myself to Jesus. And those two have to go hand in hand. And there's something really beautiful about surrendering your life to Jesus, but there's something, you know, I should say it this way, there's something beautiful about inviting Jesus to forgive your sins. That's the, the moment where there's this relief. It's like, oh, good, all my sins are forgiven, but there's something heavy about surrendering your life to Christ. And it was at that camp where I made the decision that I was going to live the rest of my life for Jesus. So I wonder if for some of you here today, 
If you're wrestling with this question, well, I'm a Christian, I've called myself a Christian, but what does this mean for me? What does it mean for me to be a Christian? I hope you're wrestling with that because you need to be. Because here's the scary, here's the scary truth. Some of us have said that we're Christians because we said a prayer. And our life has never truly changed. And as you're going to see from the text, as we're going to see from what we're reading today, when you give your life to Jesus, it is a complete transformation of who you are. If that transformation in your life hasn't happened, I want you to listen carefully to what it means to be a Christian today. Being a Christian is absolutely about inviting Jesus into your heart and for having your sins forgiven. But there is a surrendering component that must be part of that decision to allow him to forgive you. And so I want to look at this passage today in, in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to read that in a little bit. It's also in the YouVersion app, so follow along there if you want. In this passage that we're going to look at today, Paul addresses this question. Thus far in the book, he's really focused mostly on just, you know, the theory behind being a Christian. But now he's switching over to emphasizing the practical. He's now saying things like you need to put off the old self and put on the new self. In other words, before we've been talking about some of the theory, now he's saying you need to begin to show, you need to begin to, people begin, need to see that you are a follower of Jesus. And one of the ways is that your old self, who you used to be, needs to be gone and you need to embrace who you now are. So we're going to look at that in a little bit. A key focus of Paul is that we proclaim that what we proclaim should or must be substantiated in other words validated by our actions as a christian our life should exhibit christ like characteristics paul will argue that if it doesn't then we are maybe still living in the unsaved era of our lives so as i read this i want you to picture i have a picture in your head I want you to picture someone who's wearing really dirty, dirty clothes. They're just disgusting. They're the kind of person that you're like, man, you should take a shower. You need, you need to just get changed. You need to dress into something else. I want you to picture someone who's wearing dirty, dirty clothes, just these filthy clothes. But then I want you to picture that same person taking those clothes off and putting on brand new clothes because that's the image that Paul uses here to say, this is what it means to be a Christian, that you no longer are who you once were. But at the same time, you're not just standing here wearing nothing. You you have put on new clothes. You are a new creation. So let's take a look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17. So I tell you this, he says, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separate, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity they have given themselves over to the to the sensuality as, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed in order to understand Paul's argument here the first thing you need to understand is when he uses the word gentiles he's not talking about the culture Okay? Paul is actually writing to a Gentile church. He's not talking about the culture. He's, he's using the word Gentile as a way of saying those who are separated from God. 
And so when he talks about the Gentiles, he's, he's, he's referencing them, he's using them. It's a symbolic way of saying, you, are, you were once separated from God. You didn't have a relationship with God. So he's saying, in a sense, that you used to be spiritual Gentiles. You were once these, these people who were separated from God. So Paul describes or characterizes the thinking of the unsaved Gentiles as futile. They're not able to understand the message of God. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul explains that non-believers actually are not able to understand or discern spiritual matters. Listen to what it says. He says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So in other words, Paul saying, Before you became Christians, you need to understand, you weren't really able to understand the truth of God. But now, as a believer, that is going to change. A believer, on the other hand, has been rescued from this lack of understanding and sees and understands the great wonder of God's salvation. The work of God in a person's life through Jesus Christ is, a, is spiritually discerned. You cannot, you cannot embrace the fullness of Jesus Christ without surrendering fully to him and being filled by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul reminds them that once they were these people but that, that were far from God but not to, and not to go back to that. So what he does is he, he actually defines them by four characteristics. The first characteristic is this. This is the characteristics of those who were separated from God. He says that the first characteristic is a lack of sensitivity. What he's talking about here is a moral insensitivity. We don't have to look far today in our culture to recognize that our, our entire culture has really done, is doing everything it can to say, we don't want anyone to feel guilt. We don't want anyone to, to struggle with you know, um, shame and guilt and, and remorse. And, and so what we've done is we've removed as much of that as possible. We've said things like, if it feels good, then it must be good. We've now said things like, well, there's multiple truth. There's truth for you, truth for you, truth for you. And what we're intending to do or what culture is hoping to do with this is that if this is true for you, well, then you don't need to feel guilty anymore. But see, guilt plays an important part in our lives. It's an amazing function of the human conscience. One writer has described it as the pain of the soul, illustrating it as a benefit benefiting the soul and the spirit in much the same way as when we experience physical pain. Physical pain for us is a moment of alertness. When we experience physical pain, it tells us that, hey, there's danger here. You should be careful. It wakes us up. You might be cutting away and all of a sudden like, oh, and you, you pull back because you realize that pain was a warning that if you continue to go in that direction, you could do far more damage. But when we're removing guilt from our, our, our spiritual lives, we're removing guilt from our conscience, what we ultimately end up is we may, not, we may enjoy the freedom of a guilt-free life, but in the long run, it leads to utter, utter destruction. The second characteristic is lasciviousness. Let me try that again. Lasciviousness. I know this is a word you guys all throw around often, you know, and what this, what this word simply implies is this, it, it's giving oneself over to sensuality. It's taking something that's beautiful, taking something that's wholesome, taking something that God created and then perverting it. 
making it immoral, making you know, sensuality would be one of the big areas. But what's happened in our culture now is we have desensitized, we've numbed ourselves to even, that this is even happening. Let me give you the best example of this. I hear this quite often. I know Maria and I, we've experienced this ourselves. You watched a movie in the past, and now you're watching that movie with your children. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I, I forgot that was in there. I didn't know there was that much of that in there. And you stop the movie because all of a sudden you're watching this through the eyes of your children and you're like, that's not appropriate. So what this is saying is, Paul's saying is you took something that God gave you, you took a natural appetite for something that God gave you, but you perverted it on purpose so that you could fill the desires of your own heart. That's the second characteristic of a person who's unsaved. The third characteristic is impurity. This is a moral description that says nothing, <clears throat> nothing about the person's outward, <clears throat> outward appearance. In our day, <clears throat> our beauty, outer, outward beauty and, and purity is praised as a virtue, while inner purity is often ridiculed. Have you ever thought of that? As long as it looks good on the outside, as long as you have it all together on the outside, people are like, man, way to go. But if you're struggling deep within with all kinds of garbage, people don't really want to hear about it. They, they may actually ridicule you for it. But God's standard for inner purity is what we must all strive towards. And then the fourth characteristic uh, is greed. In our society... Greed is really only used when we talk about, you know, saying someone else is greedy because they took more from me than I wanted to give. And so there's often that greed is one of those things. We've become such a materialistic culture that we basically run on greed. And it's one of those things that every single one of us struggles with. And Paul says these are the four characteristics of a non-saved person. So now let's switch gear because now that he's outlined what those characteristics are of the people who are separated from God, he now wants to remind us of who we are in Christ. Look at verse 20. He says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by, being by, by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, when Jesus Christ gives a person spiritual life, the person receives a complete change of heart and a complete change of mind. You need to understand this. When Jesus Christ comes into your life, you are made new. You are changed. The Christian no longer sees the world as they once did. The mind is enlightened. The heart is cleansed. The spirit is made alive. They become a whole new person. Now, hear me carefully. This doesn't mean that you no longer struggle. It doesn't mean that you no longer have some of the temptations that you had. It doesn't mean that some of those past struggles and, and, and things that you went through are immediately automatically gone, but you yourself have a foundation now with which to take on those challenges that you did not have before. The thinking and living of a, of a Christian changes drastically. This is why Paul, after describing that what non-believers are like, reminds them that this is not the way of life you learned. In other words, he's saying, what I just described to you, what you were, those four characteristics that I just described to you, that's not what you learned about being in Christ. 
The moment we experience the forgiveness of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will begin to instruct us. What this means is that when we have a relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our life, into our life, and He will actually begin to change our thinking. In the same way that a small candle can dispel darkness, so Christ has filled our minds with light. Years ago, we as a family went into this uh, cave and, and they wanted to illustrate to us what total darkness looked like. And so they shut the lights off and it was dark. You couldn't see your hand in front of you. And so the tour guide, he, he turned on this tiny little light. And it's amazing what one tiny little light does. It gives you a place of focus. It gives you direction. Suddenly, without light, you can lose all focus. You are completely distracted. You don't know where you are turning. The same is true with your relationship with Jesus. When you give your life to Jesus, he gives us direction. He gives us focus. He instills within us the, the potential for right thinking because all thinking that is pure and true comes from him. So in verse 22 and 24, Paul speaks of the old man and the new man. This is Paul's terminology for the, for the nature that we possessed before and the new nature that we have now in our relationship with Jesus. Now, because we still live in an earthly body, in our earthly self, those old influences can impact our Actions, those old influences can impact how we live. They have influence on our thoughts and on our actions. So what does Paul do? I don't know if you caught it, but what Paul does is he appeals to our will. Because what he recognizes is that this relationship with Jesus does not come naturally. He appeals to our will. Paul says that we must make the decision. This isn't something that just happens by itself. You must make the decision to remove the old, to put off the old. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't happen naturally. When you give your life to Jesus and you're like, man, I thought those struggles would be gone. No. Those struggles are going to be there and be there. You have to make a willful decision to remove those old self um, that you used to have. So we must allow our minds to be renewed. Also, we must be, we are to renew the, you know, the material parts of our lives, our thinking, our attitudes, everything that our old nature wants to influence, we need to put that off. I want to give us a caution here because there's a catch. You cannot live as a Christian and only put off the old. You must also put on the new. I may be overstepping here a little bit, but I think one of the big struggles with North American Christianity is that we've defined being a Christian as stop doing what you once did. That's only half of it. Being a Christian is not simply, well, I used to do this, now I won't do that anymore. I used to this, I used to have this attitude, now I won't have that attitude anymore. Being a Christian is, is much more than just putting off the old self. Being a Christian is also putting on the new self. Who God wants you to be. And here is the only way you can do that. Scripture. Think about it for a moment. You want to, you want to understand the mind of God? You have to read Scripture. You have to memorize Scripture. But isn't this the very thing that almost all Christians struggle to do? 
Scripture reading, if I was to put your hand up or tell you to put your hand up now or ask you to put your hand up, how many of you would admit that you don't read your Bible enough? Probably every single hand in this room would go up. But here's the thing. In order to put on the new, we need to be familiar with who God is. We need to familiarize ourselves with the, the love of God and the plan that God has and, and the characteristics of God and, and who He is. And in order for us to truly put on this new self, we're going to need to understand and know who He is. Nothing but the Word of God can change our thinking from the old to the new. So if you're here today and you're like, man, why am I not growing in my relationship with Christ? I've tried all I can to not do the things I used to do. I've done everything I can to put that old self away. I want to remind you and I want to challenge you that maybe part of your challenge isn't to remove. The challenge is to put on. To invite God and say, what's your plan for my life? What is it that you, who do you want me to be? Not just who don't you want me to be. Who can I be in you? When we apply God's word to our lives, we will experience a new, fresh way of thinking that we cannot have in any other way. Got to quickly wrap up verse 25. Therefore, each one of us must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to our neighbors. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that, we, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one, each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. There is about four sermons in those verses, but let me wrap it up really quickly this way. As you gather from Paul's words here, this is a whole new approach to living. I hope as you listen to this, you didn't just hear rules. This is a new way of thinking. This is a change of thinking that reflects some striking characteristics. For example, we will speak truthfully. As believers, we will speak truthfully. We will have victory over our anger. We will, you know, have strength to resist temptation. We will be honest. We will have clean language. There will be a lack of quarreling. We will forgive. These are the characteristics that come with having a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the opposite of this is that we actually can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now that's a sermon in itself, but let me explain really quickly what it means by grieving the Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills you when you give your life to Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit prompts you to do something or not to do something, when you sense His presence working in you and you keep pushing Him away and pushing Him away, in the long run you grieve Him. In other words, you silence Him. Suddenly the Holy Spirit isn't as loud anymore. Why? Because you've silenced him. You've told him to stay away, always, you know, stay away, stay away. And he says, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So maybe for some of us, the prayer that we need to pray this morning is, Holy Spirit, would you be loud again? Would you make yourself known again? Would you speak again? Would you remind me again? Because I guarantee you this, 
The Holy Spirit does not only come and tell you how bad you are. He does not do that. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you. He's going to uh, you know, serve you in the sense of helping you understand who you are and to understand the Word of God. So I want to challenge you to pray and to say, God, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you fill me again? Would you speak to me again? If I have silenced you in any way, would you speak to me in a loud voice again? So when we put on the new self, we get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, all those things. But we do the very opposite of them. Paul says, we live by being kind and compassionate to, to one another, forgiving each other. That's what it means to live as a Christian. So what is a Christian? The team can come up. I'm going to wrap up real quick. What does it mean to be a Christian? Very simple. It means inviting Jesus Christ into your heart, asking him to forgive your sin, but then at the same time, surrendering yourself completely to him. Being a Christian means that you remove the old self, but you don't just stop there. You also invite the new. You put off the old, but you put on the new. Are you doing that? Are you inviting Jesus every single day to change your thinking? Are you inviting Jesus every single day to, to fill you anew? Are you just spending all your energy and all your battle and all your strength and all your time and everything that you have just to stop what you once did? That is a tiring way of living a Christian life. You must read scripture. You must pray and allow God to fill you new again and again. And that is my prayer for you. That you will put off the old, absolutely. But with the same amount of energy, you are running towards the things of God. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.